competitive 40k network presents art of war art of war strategy and tactics discussions with the best players on the planet on the planet with your host paul murphy and expert coach nick nanavati Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Art of War podcast. My name is Paul Murphy, your host. I'm joined by Nick Naravati. Hey, Paul. How's it going? Also joining us on the show is Andrew Gagno. Happy to be here, guys. Yeah, thanks for joining us, man. You just tore it up at the Nova Open play in Tau, of all things. Yeah, no, it was, a, it, was a, it was a good run. Definitely better than I expected. I think a lot of people weren't expecting Tau to do so well on the GW-style format. They have a lot of line-of-sight blocking terrain, and your Tau, of all things, was also pretty not on the beaten path as far as Tau is concerned. Yeah, no, I, uh, I I diverged a bit and I ran uh, zero crisis suits, ran a bunch of reptides like a, like I'm a relic from the past, so it kind of fit. This is part one of a two-part conversation. Uh, I want to let you know in this episode, we'll talk about the list itself, maybe some stratagems, maybe some uh, go-to secondaries, depending on what you see across the table. In part two, we'll get down to the nitty-gritty. We'll be telling folks how to beat you, how you would update the list, you know, just we're going to get you know deep inside your mind. You've been playing in the scene for a long time. And like Nick's right, people may be asking themselves, like, what's a towel? That's exactly I am uh, happy to divulge. That's exactly it. So I can't wait to get started. Hopefully you join us in part two. But for right now, Andrew, what is your list? All right. So it's a bit of an odd towel list. If you've been following Tau at all, you know, they recently got the, uh, the bit of a kick to crisis suits. Um, I wasn't in love with him anyways, so the list that I took was Tau Sept, starts with one CP, uh, it's a double patrol, and it runs uh, two cold stars, one has Exemplar of the Kion, which is the redeploy, double plasma, fancy burst, and then the high output burst, a couple marker drones. The other cold star is the Precision of the Hunter, you see him in every list, that's the full rerolls guy, um, and he has the, the fighty flamer, and the uh, a couple marker drones, a couple plasmas. And I also gave him the Tau Relic, the Maneuvering Thruster, so he has the, if you charge him, he gets to make a move thing. Uh, so after the two Cold Stars, there's Long Strike, his buddy, the other Hammerhead, because I needed someone to buff, couldn't lose out on that efficiency. Um, two Sun Shark Bombers, which are great in a lot of matches. Uh, two times ten Crute for uh, some objectives and acting like I still am going to make an effort to play the mission. Uh, two times four Crute Hounds, and... Uh, triple riptide i'll finish it out with them so just some plasma rifles on the shoulders ion accelerators and a, and a single shielded missile drone with each you weren't kidding about a blast from the past because you know we <laughs> haven't seen riptides and and i will say that a lot of people thought the hammerheads were going to have a lot more impact than, than they did uh, but they never manifested really on the table and you know especially you know like we mentioned a second ago with the games workshop tournament style terrain layout which does create fire lanes that don't exist in every tournament yeah hammerheads i think are more of a of a psychological threat than anything else right you know it's that it's that one shot that if you stick something big out there it it can it doesn't always it is one shot just delete something you know they're still delightful against knights and things like that but as you mentioned um the nova terrain and and the which is pretty much the u.s open terrain this they use the same format this year you know there's a lot of obscuring the pieces are big you can reasonably hide you know an army if you, if you plan to or you could hide you know a lot from any sort of alpha strike and, and hammerheads aren't just flying out there and seeing everything on turn one so uh they're they're interesting but i think they're more of a, a deterrent for people moving into lanes and, and zones than they are a uh 
go out there and just smash face sort of unit. I need to address the elephant in the room. There are three Riptides in this list. I don't think I've seen a Riptide since 7th edition. You know we're playing 9th edition. Andrew, did you just skip a few years? What is happening? You know, I, uh, I was frozen, and then I woke up, and I was like, what edition is it? 7th, 8th, 6th? I don't know. Whatever edition it is, I'm sure the Holy Trinity is ready to make its return. And the triple Riptides came out of the case. So uh, they are, uh, they're, they're a fun unit. They're still really good. And there's a lot of logical reasons to take them. And, and also I was trying to be a little cute, but I'm a competitive player. I wouldn't have taken them if I didn't think they were still good. I mean, it worked out for you really well, clearly making all the way to the semifinals with this army, losing only to Matt Schickman, who ended up in the finals. Um, what do they do for the audience? Because honestly, I don't even know. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll be the first to say, I will not blame them for the loss to Matt. That was my own fault. I, I recognized... Uh, the, the tempo of the game a turn too late. So uh, I got I got outplayed on that one. Um, as far as the Riptides go, uh, you know, I'll just compare them for, for people who, you know, maybe are more familiar with Tau, either with or against, to you know, the double plasma five crisis suits. You know, they put out five plasma shots, eight, three, sorry, eight, four, three, neg four, three damage at about 30 inches. And that was a unit that was a staple of basically every Tau list. It gave you some range. They... JSJ, jump, shoot, jumps. They can move out, come back, stay relatively safe. Um, and they put out some good high AP, anti-tankish sort of profile. So break, break. That unit was like low 300s before. Now it's, you know, up in the stratosphere, you know, somewhere in the mid threes, upper threes, once you get more gear. So the Riptide's about 250 for Ion Tide. He has an, and this is going to sound familiar, and I'm just going to do the supercharged profile because why not, an 834 gun. So it's about the same profile, actually a little more damage, which is really good to some neg one damage stuff nowadays, um, and two plasma shots. So if you charge up a gun, he basically is a 10 plasma shot crisis suit unit, if you want to think about it that way, um, but for only about 250. You know, they also have a lot of built-in utility, which is kind of important to note. Like, this list, if you if you watch the game of me against Brenton Weiss, I think it was one of the sillier things, because, like, I want to spend as Tau all of my CP before the game because I love my World of Traits and Relics. But I think I got to like eight or nine CP in that game because I had nothing to spend on. Because while Crisis Suits will suck up your CP, you know, Riptides have the Nova Reactor. So they can, you know, charge up if they roll 2d6 under their wounds to either get eight shots in the Ion Accelerator instead of six, five plus feel no pain, or a 2d6 inch move in the Assault phase. So they kind of... They have their own built-in stuff. They don't need a lot of support from from CP, which is nice because you know we're all a little bit stretched thin right now. What, what did you start with, uh, CP wise? So in this list, I started with one, and the funniest thing was I went in with one. And like when I first got into the CP change, I went, "Can't start with one. This is ridiculous. God, I might start with zero. How am I going to play the game?" And then by like round two of Nova, I was like, "Why do I have one CP? I should have Elvik." <laughs> <laughs> that could have been something. That could have been another Warlord trait. As each game, I just climbed in CP and was like, I don't even know what to spend this crap on. I was like, you know, solid image projector, the Bagel Hunter armor. That would have been great on the other guy. It's going to make for a really interesting brutal, brutal but cut in sections, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a section later on in the show where we'll talk about, like, what are your uh, go-to stratagems that you just absolutely save command points for? And it sounds like we've already solved that one, but, you know, we'll see in a few minutes. You know what? It's it's kind of interesting, actually, because while there aren't, because the Riptides are somewhat self-sufficient, there aren't a lot of strats that you have to use. Like, you talk about a classic Talus, right? Like, you have to strike and fade every turn. So just remove one of your CP every turn. You're doing it. Um, 
These guys can still make use of it, but it actually opens up some of the weirder strats that you normally wouldn't use because you have the CP, right? You don't want to burn it in Overactor, maybe spend two of that. Maybe use the Ion strat. Like there's other weird things that you can actually do. Maybe you're having a grizzly feast with some crude. Um, all of a sudden, you know, you've got the money to spend. Why not? Let's talk about those crew because you mentioned, you know, like the, you know, kind of the throwaway comment there because you kind of want to pretend you're actually, you know, kind of going to play the mission. You know, what did they work out for you to give you that kind of disruption element or, you know, something as a forward deploy just to give you a buy, maybe buy you a couple more turns uh, to get your shots off from the big things in the back? Yeah, I mean, I, I love crude. I've always loved them. I think they're neat models, even though I know they're kind of like ugly chickens. Um, they they are, crude so are adorable. Do not talk smack on the crew. Crude are like the coolest things in 40k. They they are definitely one of the coolest. And they eat things and they become different. That's cool. Um crude I, I I will say I think I could survive with just 10 crude and maybe three units of crude hounds, but you need some little units to do like decisive action. You want to be able to throw out something that you don't really care about and still get your three objectives. And one of those is probably in a terrible place for the for the lives of whoever goes there to take it. So they're good for that. Um, I think they ran the mission with uh, arming and disarming the bombs. You know, crude are an excellent unit for that. You start them on the line, you move them over, you drop a bomb on turn one if you um, if you get first. Uh, I love putting them, you know, just seven inches to the front of my base, you know, away from the inside of a wall of a ruin. That way, if I go first, they can go up and get some forward position, maybe screen out something coming down. Or they can just hop back to the building. So it's like a really flexible unit. Um, and, and they are nice, but I find that because of how other armies have evolved and gotten more passive scoring strategies or just better secondaries in general, Tau really have to lean into guns and kind of trying to dominate the board that way. Because if not, like they, they don't have units that that hold places of board and say, if you come near me, 10 sanguinary guard are going to mess you up, boy. You know, they have this, they have this situation where they're like, I need to clear that space before I go into it. So you see Taoist cutting out a lot of the crew and the mission play people in favor of just more things to dominate the game because they need to dominate it before they can score, typically. I've seen that same idea with other Taoists like Tom Ogden, who've had on a, a few weeks back. And same thing, like very minimal crude, some crude hounds. Just try and play the Tau secondaries, decisive action, aerospace, and something else to get through with the mission. We'll go through those also, I'm sure. But I want to talk about your list stylistically versus the tried and true multiple crisis units, even though they cost more, with otherwise the same kind of things, hammerheads, cold stars, planes. So imagine your list just swap the riptides for, for crisis suits and things of that nature. How does yours play differently, and why do you think it's better? So I will say, I think. Both lists are good. Um, I think mine fits me better. And to some degree, lists have to fit the style of the player a bit. Um, I think that even the tried and true crisis lists, like the, the aficionados like like Tom, are probably, they would probably gain a lot from at least adding in one Riptide just because of the points differentials. For instance, if, if you take a look at my list and you were to cut the three Riptides, you only get about 795 points. That's maybe two times five crisis and a lot of people running units that are north of 400 each so i get three riptides that don't need a bunch of buffer support because now you have to add in shadow sun and you're going to add in other people to buff them up um and all of a sudden you're like i get one crisis unit and some buffing characters um 
I, I just don't like that as a play style. I think crisis is really suffer now. And you'll see like the typical loadout for a lot of people is um, plasma burst cyclic or plasma fusion burst or something like that. Right. So they have one gun that lives in that 30 inch range. They have multiple guns that live in that 18 inch range. If you want to be able to have the option to play passively, um, which can be good in certain matches, uh, it's really hampered by the fact if, if your key units, uh, you know, have 18 inch guns, <laughs> that's not great. So like, if you see the game between me and Brenton, you know, once I got a tiny point lead, I was able to just hang back because Brent had to cross this, you know, that middle zone and like there it's no, but there's terrain and like there's those middle blockers, but I can hop into them and he has to stage at them. So if he goes to them, my reptiles just touch them and go, why don't you pick yourself up? Because no matter how durable you make a suit unit nowadays, the game has gotten so lethal that like you're almost throwing good money after bad when you, when you start like putting all the durability into those, because they're just, they don't, they still aren't going to stand up to like, a tower army, right? So, so you think if they're ever the target of an attack, it's basically lights out for them. So you're you're better off getting something a little bit more, maybe less CP dependent, and also slightly more durable. For, for sounds like a little bit more of a bargain on the points when you're looking at the overall threat. Yeah, and when and when you lose a riptide, you know it's it's not the end of the world. I do have two others. It's 265 points. Um, it acts pretty independently. So if like I really want to make a primary swing. You know, I can put a feel no pain riptide with shield of missile drones sitting on the center, toe in with the center blockers basically blocking him. So they have to really commit to kill him. And he's really hard to kill. You know, I had a town player try to do it with two sun sharks during his Kion turns, you know, with other stuff. And I still had a few wounds left and the math wasn't really off. Um, whereas if you, and, and if I lose that riptide, I'm down 265 points. I still have two others. I still have my cold stars. I still have other stuff to play with. If you do that with a 400-something point crisis brick, you've lost generally one of two important crisis bricks. That's a big deal. And if you lose both of those, now you have like two or three characters that were probably buffing them that are completely dead weight. So I like that I have independent pieces to play with. It also just fits my style a bit better. I like having that flexibility. But I think you could really argue for a lot of those crisis lists replacing at least one crisis suit unit with a riptide. You said it fits your play style better. I think that's a really cool point. What does that mean to you? Like, what is play fits your play style better? So, I like a list that gives me all the options to like. If I want to play passively, I can play passively. If I, you know, if I want to sit back and have a game where I don't go till later. Um, if I want to be able to pick at someone from range. Uh, if you have a crisis unit, and this is this is what I'm written found. You know, if you shoot five plasmas at me from range, I really don't care. What am I going to fail to? And then I'm going to take some feeling of pain. That's not a big deal. Um, I, I want the list to have that flex for me as a player, even though it lacks kind of like the the full aggression ability of something that maybe like one of those like heavy crisis lists like Tom runs. Now, Tom's taken down more events than me with Tau this year. So it's not like I'm saying his style is wrong, uh, but it doesn't fit me. I've never been a player that's like ultra aggressive in game. I think, Nick, you would. You would agree with that. And that's just not my style. Yeah, you like to shoot people from as far away as possible. Getting punched is awful. I see that. It, it, I've actually, having watched you play your army as the commentator from GW Streams for the past weekend, it was, it was telling in your style that you did just stay as far away as possible, both in your game against Alex Fennel that we saw and your game against Matt Shookman. You stayed far away and then started getting aggressive when you realized you had to a turn too late because your style is basically to stay 
far away. And those riptides give you a long range punch in conjunction with those hammerheads. Do you find that this style struggles to get aggressive when the situation demands it? Like if your opponent is in a situation where they can passively outscore you and forces you to come at them? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that this list itself has that issue. I think that the I have that issue. I think that, you know, it plays really well because it starts, you know, it trades basically nothing in the early turns and still does it does keeps up decently on the points. They're like decisive and other things. Um, and it doesn't lose anything, right? It loses some crude hounds, but the things I'm killing. So by the time I try to make my my push, I have a, a big lopsided points advantage, hopefully, right? And that's kind of how I like to play it. Um Sometimes I wait a turn too long, and that's where I get myself in trouble. Now, this list can still be really aggressive, right? Like if you saw against Fennel, I had that Riptide lurking over on the bottom of the board, ready to make his long move, right? So they can move 12, then 6 for Strike, then 2v6 for Assault Phase. So like this whole army can lurch forward really fast. But if the person piloting it waits one turn too long because they don't realize, you know, they're, they're in a slightly uh, like disadvantage point situation, uh, like against Matt, um, it, it creates problems, right? And then you end up having to make some weird plays that you wouldn't normally. And, and the game against Matt, honestly, I think was probably more my fault on secondaries, partly too, and how I played the early game. But that's a probably a story for part two or whenever you want to have it. Yeah, we'll talk about secondaries in just a bit. I want to go keep going through your list a little bit because it's so it's still the same as other tell, but it's also so different. Um, you have so many toughness seven, toughness six, just wounds, tulip saves all over the place. Do you find your army is ever stat checking people in that you can't kill this much armor effectively? Or is it just no one tries to play that game with you because your firepower is so high? Uh, I think it's a, I think it's more the latter than the former, right? I think no one probably really wants to trade long range firepower with this, but even so, like, my default for my Riptides is, is generally feeling no pain or it's the Assault Phase move because the 40k has gotten really lethal. And I'll say people come out and they gear up to kill, you know, Death Guard Terminator Spam. They come out to kill Imperial Knights. You know, if you can kill 12 War Dogs or something like that in Abaddon, you know, that's what, 12 times 12, you know, 144 or something like that. T7 wounds with three up, five up. I mean, this is only three Riptides, two Hammerheads that are really in that sort of bracket. So, you know, it's not even half that. Um, it's it's definitely durable, but I think that, unfortunately, it doesn't stat check people. It'd be great if it did. Um, if I could take more Riptides, I would, but they won't let me. Um, but, like, Hammerheads, I have them routinely get picked up. A lot of times, they're, they're, they lurk as a threat, because as soon as they come out and fire their shot, um, they're out. And, you know, I've had an Exocrine pick up one-in-one shot. Tyrannifexes will routinely pick up one-in-one shot. Um, Tau will pick up one-in-one shot. You know, Menhirs, if you let them see them, will basically pick one up. And you can save your protocol, some of these things. But if they have a little bit of other shooting, like, those tanks, they get ripped quick. And you don't like them getting ripped in your backfield. So it's it's a little bit of a stat check in some ways because it's very maneuverable and it does have good ranged firepower. But, but not really. It still is like most things in 40k fairly delicate when you get right down to it that's really interesting i wouldn't assume that given that it's so durable looking on the table just being a bunch of vehicles and monsters yeah what is the beefiest thing you took out with the hammerheads oh um i mean probably a knight i got a castellan at one point with the hammerheads in one turn just boom boom no oh no 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 it took two turns um i don't i don't i can't think of anything that hammerheads really one shot super effectively at a 
Did you get a classic rhino kill? Yeah, I had some classic rhino kills. Those always feel really good. <laughs> ah, I deleted a rhino. But like most big things nowadays that are really like the stuff that are like, man, I'm afraid of hammerheads. They're like, and I'm like, how many wounds do you have? They're like 13. I'm like, shut up. <laughs> but you know, because they, they do anywhere from uh, 10 to 12 damage. So a lot of the big things nowadays from like NIDs, you know, Tyrannus, Ward- Tyrannus uh, Baby Knights, things like that. Like they're just, they're, they're physically out of your ability to kill them with just a rail shot. And that's assuming they don't have some sort of feeling of pain and you roll decently well. So the hammerhead one-shotting things is a bit of a myth, though chunking off 10 wounds from anything is not going to leave it happy. Yeah, you're going to have a hard time selling me that hammerheads don't hurt stuff. Well, it looked like you even, you know, you mentioned being almost like a uh, a mental threat. And it does, it kept people, even we saw, you know, from bringing what, maybe their power pieces into the mix of things because they are afraid to get them just obliterated with a couple of lucky rolls. Yeah, exactly. And, and keeping people out of lanes kind of keeps them honest on how they approach you, which I think is important. It's probably a lesson that a lot of the Necron lists need to learn from Jax. You know, Jack had some cool tech in his list, but I think one of the biggest things that made me more scared of Jack's list than a lot of the others was the fact that he had actual shooting that wasn't just the Silent King and his men here's, you know. Against those other lists, I can kind of just stand wherever I want. Um, against Jack's list, I would have had to be a lot more careful about that because he has real shooting that does real damage. Come on, the destroyers. Yep, exactly. Um, and I think, Nick, you had asked about the rest of the list. The the thing that I think has called on popularity lately is the Sunshark Bombers. I have to ask those things. Yeah. Someone, someone once told me, uh, like when I first started taking them, it was like, oh, they're bad. And I think it was Tony who then had, I, I mentioned this to Tony, kind of like, how do people think these are bad? He's like, nothing with that many shots can possibly be bad. Um, and it's 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 very true. I mean, it, it essentially has 16 two-damage shots at AB2. Why don't you just break down what exactly it does and it's bombing and all the different things it can do? Because I think they're not that commonly seen, but they're growing in popularity, as you said. And I, I want to reveal the light on these monstrous tanks. So... I will say up front, they are paper armor, right? They're T6, they're 12 wounds, they have a 4-up save. They're still good at 165. They're amazing. And Howlis should be running them, probably. Um, but I will say that to say that you should be running Exemplar of the Kion if you're running them, because you cannot leave them on the board against any army with real shooting. You can leave them on against, like, sisters and just measure out 30 inches from the Meltas. Um but beyond that, they should probably get ripped off the board into strat reserve if you're going second. So Sunshark Bombers, in my opinion, are essentially like an answer to how Tau pivoted to uh, to losing indirect. So once you lost indirect, you needed some way to look behind the ruins. And that is incredibly important at Nova because people like to just hide in their stupid boxes and passively score you. Um, Sunsharks are kind of your answer to that nowadays for, for lack of a better thing. So they move 20 to 50. They have a bombing run like a lot of the other things do, so they can do it every turn of the game. Something that they fly over, it's the model passes over. You do uh, a D6 for every model in the unit, capped at 10, or six dice per vehicle in the unit, capped at 10. Four plus is immortal. Uh, bombing Paragon Warsuits, you will never feel better about yourself as a player. Um, two bombers coming in Paragon Warsuits basically pick up three, which is honestly one of the best feelings in the world. <laughs> Uh, beyond that, they also have a marker light. So it's a great way to put a marker light somewhere that you normally couldn't. Um, they are a little bit better as FSE because they can split fire easier because they get the marker with it nine. Um, but they also have two missile pods because the second one's free for some reason. So you have four, seven, minus two, two shots. And then you have two interceptor drones, which each have two ion rifles. So essentially you have 
12 7 2 1 shots, or as everyone will fire them, 12 8 2 2 shots. So you essentially have 16 solidly high damage, uh, solidly high strength, I mean, minus two, two damage shots. And then you also have a marker light, and then you also have the bombing run, and then you also have uh, two seeker missiles that are one shot each, and all of that for the bargain price of 165. Yeah, these things seem insane, especially because they solved the, the problem I was going to highlight is how do you see behind walls? And these yeah. things just do it. They bomb you, and then they shoot you, and then you're dead. And for me, they kind of serve like a, a secondary purpose. And one of the things I think when I first started using them that I really had to get used to, and I probably didn't until like this last month, um, was generally, even though you want their shooting, you should fly off with them on turn one. It feels terrible because you're like, but all those shots. Um, but it's better to keep them alive so that you can have them as a threat to come back in. Um and do some damage later than it is to just trade them on turn one. You've influenced where your opponent's moving, where they move out to get aggressively score, or maybe put them a turn behind on their secondaries. Yeah, and a lot of time, you know, you can drop them on a late turn, and for me, they can act like the crisis units I don't have, right? They drop down about 16 two-damage shots. I can put them somewhere that I'm not near and pick up a a trash unit, which is really useful for me because I don't have this deep-striking crisis. Um... If you've removed some of their long-range firepower because you've been trading with them, um, on turn two or three, maybe, you drop them into your back corner, the safest spot possible, if you've taken out a little of the long-range shooting. Okay, now you can do another bombing run and still have some late-game firepower. So unless you're in a match where, like, them being on trades for some, like, key linchpin piece, like in the Kron match, frequently it's useful. They can pick up Silent King in one go. It's actually fairly odds-on to do it. Um, They can pick up like in Jaxus, like the spider and the reanimator and, and like ding up the destroyers a good bit. Knights against Imperial Knights, their best chance to do damage is before they all get minus one damage from Bondsman abilities if you're going first. So like there's some key matches. Uh, I left one on against Brenton because he had an exposed cold star. But unless you're trading for some super high value target, unfortunately it is it is best to fly them off. And, and I have misplayed that about a hundred times because I get greedy because more bullets. <laughs> One of the things I noted in your game against Alex is actually your patience with him. You're doing zigzags in your own deployment zone instead of just sending them over to his side. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, because, you know, they're only 12 wounds. They are pretty easy. The men here's and Silent King, if they get near him, will just pick him up. And I felt like the way that he was playing Silent King in that game so far back, like, I want Silent King's an amazing model, but there's nothing that makes me happier than killing Silent King. Maybe after Paragon War Suits, because that just feels so cheesy. But it happens the exact same way as Silent King. Each of the men here is a vehicle, too. So you roll 10 dice, on average, you pick up a men here. You roll 10 dice again, you pick up the other men here, and then you shoot him to death. Feels great. But in that match, Silent King was just hanging in the back of the board. So like he was buffing his units, but trading my two planes for Silent King standing in the back doing nothing was not a good idea. So like I really wanted to, because screw that guy, but I, I resisted. Finally, I, I managed to hold back my, my giddy child inside. Strain paid off for you. Look at that. <laughs> it's hard to have, especially when you see a target like that. Like, oh, I need to go for it because the man says like, I can do it, but then, you know, compromises stuff later in the game for you. Let's take a quick break for a little bit of a station identification, and then we'll come back and talk about secondaries. Like what you're listening to? Be sure to check out the second part of this episode, where we break down specifically how our guest plays against all the top armies in the game. Want even more awesome Warhammer content? Check out the War Room. The War Room. 
You'll gain access to the minds of the best Warhammer players in the world with brand new content every single week. Join our amazing community, elevate your game, and enjoy your hobby more. Thanks for hanging in there with us. We're back with Andrew Cagno. Welcome back. Uh, so the secondaries, one of the ways to score points in this game. And now in Nephilim, you know, where you have more access to your codex secondaries or Nephilim secondaries, as the case may be, you know, what are you picking? How are you actually scoring points in your games today? Well, first I'll say we should just go back to letting me kill and kill more because it would really help me. But in this case, you know, my secondaries. I'll do the most common one first. I will basically always pick decisive action. It's definitely the best, the most general use of um, the Tau secondaries. As long as you've built in some crew towns, and, and you should have, um, or some trash unit like a designated tasking drone to throw off of a unit, 12 points and having the control of when you score them is awesome, right? You don't even need to control more. Could you just I, I walk through how it works in case for the non-tap players in this audience? Yeah, sure. So it's like the old stranglehold. So you need to control three objectives. You do not have to control more than your opponent, which Stranglehold did have. And if you do it, you get four points. It caps at 12, and it happens during your Kion or your Monkotter. And so if you choose the Monkot philosophy, you score it for doing that, holding three objectives at the end of your turn, turns one, two, and three. If you choose Kion, you do it turns three, four, and five. It actually works out really well, because if you're doing Monkai, you're probably doing a lot of aggressive play, you know, because you did it probably for the Countess stationary in the, in the advance. Not many people are choosing Monkai anymore because you lost the AP. If you do a Kion, you don't have to have those things done until turns three, four, and five, which is which is pretty nice generally. Uh, so next secondary, so that one, I cannot think of a game that I haven't taken decisive action and I'll say in, I don't know, six months, right? Since Stranglehold went away at least. So after that, uh, generally I'll pick banners or aerospace relays. Uh, they're both in shadow ops. So aerospace relays is good if you feel like you're going to have really good late game board control, like you're going to be tabling someone or they're just not going to have much left. Or if you just know that you're going to have really bad early game board control, um, knights are a good example of that. Um, you're probably not rushing out early because they play a pressure game. They're scoring in the middle. They're just they're everywhere and you really don't want to get caught by knights. So you're going to pick aerospace relays. So aerospace relays is put an objective at the midpoint of each table edge, um, you know, the, the sides of the board. And then you have to have a unit within six inches of the center of it. You do an action. If you have a fire warrior unit, it completes immediately. Sorry, at the end of your turn, if you have a um, anyone else has to be infantry still. Characters can do it. So can Crute. Um, it completes the start of your next command phase. Uh, for each one that you complete, there's four of them. You get two points for one, six points, I believe, for two. Nine points for three, I want to say, um, and then 15 for that. So it's good because it caps. You know, most of the cow, cow objectives cap at like 12, uh, like Clean Victory does. So does Decisive Action. This one will actually get you all the way to that 15, so you can act like you're a Kron player for a chance. Do you actually score this one for more than like six? I feel like you have three, four, or five units that can actually do this action, and they're very flimsy. Yeah, so it's typically a nine for me, and I'll get a 15 fairly often. Um, so you, you do it with the cold stars. The cold stars are typically the unit that does it. So this list has some interesting play board. So like, think about it this way. You're, you're crude or so, or any unit, right? You're not using a cold star on turn one, really, because they don't have range to stuff. No one's just standing out in front of you, just let you shoot them. Um, so you can get your backfield one really easily. So if you're in like Dawn of War, it's right in the center of your deployment zone. 
Um, if you're in a quarters mission, you have two of them that are technically in your deployment zone. You have to be within six inches of it, which is really actually a pretty good distance. So you can be pretty far back. So you pick up one or two in the very early game. And then at the end of the game, it completes at the end of the game. Sorry, if you start on turn five. So you're going second, it's very easy. Your cold stars just teleport and just do it. That means you aren't using them on turn five, which can also be an issue. And if you went first, it means your opponent can respond. Um, but you can do little things like shelter them with a riptide, right? You can have some character protection. Um, but yeah, it, it typically is one that you can expect to get a nine. The one in the back of your opponents is only going to be yours if you're already just beating the you know beating the brakes off them. So it's 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 a reason why like if you take it, you should generally expect to get nine and fifteen if you're already winning, which is great for the scoreboards, but not a thing that changes the game. Which would bring me to the other option, which is banners. So anytime you have two objectives that you can play from your deployment zone or from your pseudo deployment zone, for instance, if you're in a quarters mission like conversion or death and zeal. Um, you have one, but you could just switch the game to be uh, like a hammer and anvil deployment. And if you do that, you have two that you're sitting on. Um, Data Scry Salvage is like that too. There's two that are fairly far back as long as you shift north. So there's there's a few options uh, for it uh, with banners. Banners is typically, as long as you're not playing like a, a really heavy pressure army or an army that has... Uh, a lot of OPSEC missiles they are just going to throw at you. Uh, banners is a pretty reliable 8 to 11, and usually more towards the 10 or 11, I find. So I, I will go with Banners generally more frequently than Aerospace, because Aerospace can be a trap. You don't find that the Banners isn't too much of an issue with you having so few infantry? Your opponent can just snipe them out? Uh, generally not. I mean, especially on Nova Terrain. Um, sorry, the, the terrain we used at Nova. Um, you shouldn't be leaving any units out to get shot on turn one anyways. Uh, and then you just, you know, if you if you start your recruit in most places, you can seven inch move behind the other ruin outside of their deployment zone, um, and then just move and set up a banner on turn one. And then as long as you shift some riptides or some other unit up there and are keeping someone off of you sufficiently, um, they're not knocking down your banners. I, I don't take banners any time that I think that my opponent is going to easily knock down my banners because it's it's like taking assassinate. Someone can just choose how many points you score, which really sucks. Um, and I don't want to incentivize them to come knock down my banners because then it's a pain to put them back up for me because, as you mentioned, I don't exactly have a lot of infantry and I don't want to waste a Cold Star's time doing it. So only against armies that aren't really aggressive or interested in coming to your side? Yeah, as long as I can keep them not wanting to to jump into me like that, uh, I'm willing to do banners. So there, there's some missions I am, there's some missions I'm not. Like, I think, I can't remember what I did against Alex. I believe I did banners actually even against crons in that one because the objectives were far enough back and i thought i could keep them off of me so yeah i'll do banners in a fair of them i should have done banners against matt for sure uh and that's the downside of aerospace relays if you're not going second it's much weaker and it does also mean that if you're in a game where you're playing passive or you think you're going to have to be playing a bit of a catch-up game um as in they're going to get off to an early lead and you're going to have to be really aggressive especially during your kion turns um forfeiting the use of your two cold stars in my list on turn five to go pop over and do stupid actions uh not great not a great feeling you know turn five is when you have you know exploding fours fives and sixes i had one of those guys put out i think a little over 40 shots himself it was like 10 shots 19 hits um punting his shooting on turn five 
feels terrible. And I think that's why aerospace can can frequently be a problem. It's also very screenable if you're now a lot of opponents don't know how to play against it, but um you do have to get there. So if your opponent is planning on using cold stars and like you pick up their trash infantry first and all they have is cold stars, if they just move something within range of that point on the board, you can't deep strike over there. So if you weren't already staged and waiting to like just move onto it, you can't get there now. And you just lose a bunch of points. So you have to be careful when you take it. So what's the, like the uh, thought process between aerospace versus banners? When do you go know for which one do you go for? So yeah, back to the it, it's basically any time that I think I'm either going to have, and you can cut this either way, terrible board control early, and so I'm not going to be able to reliably keep up banners. I think I'm going to have great board control later because I'm just going to table someone, right? That's when I'll do aerospace because banners isn't viable. And so I'd rather pick up a, a fairly reliable six that's that's really easier, whatever it is, five or six. So banners help you more when you need to play a passive kind of game. And if when your opponent's trying to run straight at you and, and fight you and that'll likely cause you to kill them faster, that's when you can get away with aerospace because you can figure it all at the end after the damage is done. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good way to look at it. If you think by the end they won't have many pieces and you're not going to need a lot of your firepower and like you can just go to the points on the board, it's fine. Uh, but it is it is risky. Like it, it does carry some some issues as that's how I lost the game against Matt, for instance. I lost the game for a lot of reasons against Matt. That was one of the reasons I lost the game against Matt. <laughs> Sounds like <laughs> you'd be an excellent candidate about. for Unbroken where we talk about how to learn from your losses. Well, I'll say a couple of the games that we're talking about here are are, are recorded. They're over on the Warhammer TV Twitch stream. That's true. And then I will uh, I'll get out the second elephant in the room is you'll notice I did not talk about a third secondary. And that's because the third Tau secondary, um, as much as I would like to rag on clean victory, and it is terrible. I have thought of a few fringe cases where I think I might take it in the future. But in general, the third Tau secondary is... Whatever I can get between six and ten points on against my opponent. And yeah, six is sadly in the acceptable range. So did they give up an eight on no prisoners? All right, sure. Do they have bring it down for ten? That's amazing. Let's do that. Um, do I think I can reliably get a six to a nine on grind? Sounds good. Let's do that. Assassinate's the only one that I will just say you should basically never take. Um but beyond that, yeah, your third Tau secondary is generally choose something based on your opponent's army that isn't awful. If it if it's uh, I guess it's all kind of the same range, right? Like six to six to nine in that bring it down category. Like you could get a six or nine on grind. They give up like seven, eight, no prisoners points. Where do you lean? It sounded like something that involved you know removing units except assassination. Yeah, yeah. So I would say assassinate is like the the best example of why I wouldn't pick one of those and why I would lean away from them, Nick. So like assassinate, as Paul mentioned that I, that I won't do is because if your opponent, let's say they have four or five characters and let's say they're not like a knight or something like that, right? Like they're a character as like say sisters, they have like six, they have like eight characters. You look at it and you're like, Oh my God, assassinate would be so easy. Most of those characters cost either like 200 something and they're named Vol and they are impossible to kill if they don't want you to. Or they're like a 50-point character, and if your opponent looks at their 50-point character, which is usually a little buffing character, and goes, huh, if I just don't give you this, you don't get three points? And you're like, yeah, and they're like, cool, it's behind this wall, way back. And you're like, ah, crap, I scored a zero. Um, same methodology when you're thinking about the others. I think of the ones that I can most reliably get throughout the game. 
Grind is one that I choose more often than I should because it, unless you're going second, it's very hard to know what the unit count you're going to need is and your opponent does and they can figure out how to screw you out of your points. Now, some armies have just high unit counts and they have to engage with you like your MSU. It's not bad for this list because outside of losing some crew towns in a couple turns, I generally don't lose a unit or if I do, it's like one and that's not an issue. Uh, so grind can work and I should choose it less because it doesn't always uh, no prisoners is probably my favorite because you can just sit there and chew away at all game. It's much more reliable and stable to be able to predict your score as the game goes on. Um, bring it down as long as they have to play with those pieces. I also really like, so if they have like a 10 to a 12 and bring it down, I'll probably take that. Um, if not, I generally lean no prisoners because anytime someone can just choose not to play with pieces that are just not that important to their strategy, just to take a ton of points away from you, they're probably going to do it if they're thinking about it. And that's bad. All of a sudden, your, your decent secondary goes to a goose egg and you're like, oh, crap, I'm really far behind. That's 100% going to happen in game five. You know, yeah. you might you, know, you might get away with picking that in game one or two, but game five, people are going to be uh, clued in, you know, really worried about the differential points and, you know, basically steely eyed, not going to let you get away with that. Yeah, so like Necrons, it's probably going to be no prisoners um, against like a Greenite list or something like that. Maybe even Thousand Suns, but they're not as vulnerable to it. You can take a horror. Um, against Eldar, I drift into Grind even though I shouldn't because their only other thing they typically give up is Assassinate, and they can just not let you have their characters um, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of like the decision tree that I use when I'm picking it. The third one's not great. You just have to pick the one that's going to hurt you the least. Yeah, I've seen a lot of Tau armies struggle with that secondary suite. I almost feel like they their whole plan is just table the opponent and then let the points come by the end of it. But do you say that's like an apt description of how it actually plays, or is there more nuance to it? There's definitely more nuance to it, um, especially in the list like this that I'm not saying this is like the big brain list, right? Just a list that plays a little more passively. The stuff stays around longer. I don't have to commit as hard. Um, but, but yeah, tower much more in a position as a faction where most other factions just score better than we do. And, and part of that is other factions just have better secondaries. They just do, you know, Sisters and Crons have better secondaries than most of us. But, you know, Thousand Sons have amazing secondaries. A lot of the armies do right now. Tau don't. Um, and that's not a whine. That's just the reality of it, right? And so if they just have better secondaries for showing up than you do, then you have to make something happen. The, the onus is on you. Um, the other reason is a lot of armies can put out forward units that just won't die. Um, you know, you can put a Terminator brick, you can hide someone behind a wall, you can do some cute things with it. Um, and it's just durable, right? People don't want to come right near it. They don't want to charge it for some various reason. Maybe it's just tough in combat. Maybe there's a fight last lurking nearby. Tau don't have any of that. There is not a Tau unit in the book that is going to keep someone away from it. So, like, it, it's it's why I think a lot of Tau lists have kind of went towards the tabling approach is because primary can be really rough for Tau. It's not hard to take decisive action at the end of your turn. But tell me 10 crew are still going to be standing there when I go start my turn on anything but the back objectives. Um, even tell me a crisis suit unit that's, that's standing in midfield is probably still going to be standing there on turn two, right? Maybe on turn four or five when they, they're done a little bit of that tabling. But in the early game, they don't have units that really make someone stay away from them like a lot of other people do. If you have Jack's list with uh, six score packs standing behind a wall in midfield, 
No one's rushing six score. Most people are not rushing six score picks with a five plus in bowl. They're nasty, right? People are more than willing to rush me. (laughs) That's fair. Uh, So before we wrap this segment up, let's talk about stratagems or command points just a bit. A brutal beginning. What you choose to spend your command points on. So for me, um, pregame is the is the most valuable place, and even that little one that I kept, I should have put something else on. I still use Strike and Fade a fair bit. It's still one of the best strats in the book. Talk to an Eldor player that will remind you how theirs cost two now, and it's not fair. It's true. Fire um, and Fade's might, nerfed, and you have this broken one. It's I agree. It might not be wrong. I'll be honest. But Strike and Fade is definitely one of the best ones. Um, one CP Act as Full for vehicles is amazing. Um, a less used one is probably like exploding your suits fail safe detonator it's really useful at times um that almost cost me my uh side wager we had this past weekend <laughs> when i did it yeah you know we track those kind of things you know we're all about the stats over here from the booth we track the number of explosions i was saying throughout the entire weekend we would score 16 explosions across all the games paul said 11 uh i'd like to Ooh, point out that the fail safe did it count what is it yeah. the fail safe did count Ooh. I'm trying to think of, of the other strats. So, like, I will actually use the 2CP, don't have to take morale a fair bit. And that's, like, one of those ones that, I, I, yes, I know everyone has access to it. But a lot of us can't afford it because we have better strats in our book. And since I'm running up the CP because I don't have a ton to spend on, like, I'm not striking fading every turn and things like that. I'm not using that CP to advance and shoot normally. You know, the advanced six inches one for crisis suits. I started having access to that. So like I've used it on a single crude hound to keep a key objective. It was like an eight point swing in one game. Um, the crude six inch heroic strat is really useful. Actually. Um, it doesn't come up every game. It doesn't come up every other game, but when it does come up and I try to remind my opponents before the game, like here's some weird things that the army can do. Crude have a heroic strat. And they're like, ha ha funny. And you're like, okay, but at some point in the game, you may just go like, I need that objective or I need a couple more models there. And being able to heroic in a few extra guys is really useful for taking the point. Um, uh, I've heroicked like onto other crude hounds. Like there's some weird things you can do with it. Uh, but I would say definitely the big ones, strike and fade are, and act as full are the most common ones that I'll use. Oh, you mean act as like full profile and damage. Yeah. Sorry. They have a one CP vehicles act at full profile. So it's great for riptides, um, it's great for the for the tanks, you know, 14 wounds. Um, I know I said they aren't that durable, but there's a lot of times when Hammerhead is left with a couple wounds, um, especially if you use, and I should have thought of this one, it's the one I use all the time, Savior Protocols. So Savior Protocols now, unlike just shield drones for days, um, but it works in any sept unit. So you can turn the damage of an attack to zero and just basically shuck a drone. So Someone comes after your flyers, your hammerheads on turn one, just leaving your commander's marker drone standing next to them means, you know, they fire in that big shot. And you're like, I'm going to ignore one of them. And they're like, ah, crap, your hammerhead's left at four. And you're like, yup, next turn act is full. So there, there's some nice things that you can do. There's still some solid Tau strats. Uh, what about like picking up the relics? I mean, we've seen some Tau armies will take, the, if, forgive me, I'm forgetting the name of the relic, but essentially lets their commander punch through things. Oh, the Onager, yes. Um, I personally feel like fighting with that fighty flamer is plenty for me. The Onager is really good in certain matches, though, because it is flat three and better AP. Um, I like vectored maneuvering thrusters. I think I like them far more in theory and on paper than they are good in reality. Um, They give plus two inch move. They let you have a normal move when you're charged, so you basically become unchargeable. And it is really nice, right? 
if you need a unit to go just exist on an objective against an army that just doesn't have a lot of shooting, um, they can make you move, but at least you were able to stand there at the end of your turn for no cost. The other thing is you can do some cute tricks with it, but I like to remind my opponents every turn, like if they go to charge, I'm like, remember, that's the guy that can move after you charge him. They're like, oh, okay, then I'm not charging him. I'm like, yeah, I know you're not. <sighs> but gotchas are no fun for anyone. But still, not being chargeable is nice. Uh, if someone does decide they have to charge him to move him, you can get some great consolation prizes by like moving next to another unit and heroicing into them. Um, so he has some cute uses. Uh, in general, I would probably just stick to taking durability upgrades on my cold stars, though. And I think in the future, I'll probably do that. I'll probably go back to like the solid image projector for the four plus invul that doesn't take one of your slots, ignore the first failed save, and then the, the bagel hunter armor for. Uh, you know, an extra Pippa save and uh, five of field of pain. I think it would probably get back to those. I like the advanced EMS and the uh, multi-sensor discouragement ray too. EMS is no deep strike within 12 inches of the bear. So you can like, you can become an infiltrator for a moment and like block out a gate. Um, and it has like a, you, you pick a unit within six inches and it's not affected by war abilities of other units from its army. I, I don't know when that would ever come up. And the multi-sensor discouragement ray is like roll 2D, 3D6. And if you're over the target's leadership, you can choose a debuff for them. And some of the debuffs are really powerful. Like ones like, I think there's a lose obsec, there's like a half move, half charge, and then I think shoot the closest eligible. I think those are the things. I've, I've only, I don't know if I've ever actually used it, but I've really flirted with it a few times. Well, this segment leads me really nicely into one of my last questions for this segment. And I'm very eager to get into part two where we talk about kind of how you approach your target priority, how do you attack scary close combat units behind walls effectively, just all the problems you encounter with your town army, so that'll be for subscribers. But, Andrew, what would you change if Nova was again this coming weekend, knowing what you know now? I'm actually not sure. I was I was genuinely really happy with my list, but the thing that I'm probably going to start testing, and I don't think I would change it for Nova without testing it first, right? But the thing I want to kind of mess around with is a different sept, potentially. Um, I didn't feel, as mentioned, the Tau Relic was super key to me. Um, I don't feel like I got enough value out of Tau Sept for what it is. And I think there were other ones that would be better for me. So, for instance, out of Tau Sept, I do not care about the aura ranges. I have no core, so I basically can't use the strat. Um, I just mentioned I don't like the Relic. So I'm really, really getting a hit or wound reroll and access to Longstrike, who's a pretty cool guy. But he's really just an upgraded Hammerhead. Would it be better to get a custom set, say, for 5-plus feeling pain against mortals and plus 2 inches to my move on everyone. 14-inch move riptide is actually pretty different. Um, or you could trade the 5-plus feeling pain against mortals for a reroll to wound. So then you basically get your hammerhead reliability back. I think there's some cool custom sets that I would want to explore. I still want Borkin to have uses just because I love the Seeker Perfection. FSC for triple cold star. So there's still some really cool, like, nuanced changes within town of the different steps. Now, a lot of them are viable. So I think that's probably what I would play around with. Um, and then I would probably just approach some of my secondaries and game plans differently with what I learned. That, that's what would change if I had Nova again. I'd, I'd play better. <laughs> <laughs> what a great answer. I love that. I, I like that v very, you know, uh, objective answer about taking, you know, ownership of, you know, how it all shook out. So that, that's really cool. Something to learn. But we'll come to a pause right here of part one of this conversation. For anybody that's just, you know, got to listen to this part, please leave us some five-star reviews, like, share, subscribe if you haven't already. To those of you that are subscribed to that section of the podcast, hold tight. We'll be right back. Like what you just listened to? 
check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. TheArtOfWar40K.com <laughs>